So may I say welcome this evening, a very warm welcome to everyone who has joined us here today, uh, this evening, depending on where you are in the world. Uh, it's so great to have so many people joining us uh, for this uh, uh, time with uh, Joseph Goldstein. My name is Devin Ashwood. I'm the director at Gaia House and I'm your host for this evening. I'll just be saying a little bit at the beginning and end. And uh, I really appreciate uh, how much uh, support you're all giving to, to Gaia House and to this event uh, and your time this evening. And um, thank you to Joseph, especially for bringing us together to, tonight to celebrate uh, Gaia House and to support its survival in these very strange times that we're living through. Uh, Gaia House, as I'm sure most of you are probably aware, is uh, located in England. Um, but we have a Sangha all over the world and there's people tonight joining us from Germany, Belgium, Greece, Sweden, all over the USA uh, and the UK where Joseph's mm -hmm. from. Just so heartening to see so many people from such a, such a, a broad range of, of the mm -hmm. planet. And uh, just uh, once more, just say that um, this uh, evening uh, will uh, is dedicated to the, the support of the Dharma and in particular in the form of Gaia House where people, so many people find refuge for um, meditation and inquiry uh, in that uh, lovely space for those of you who have been there in England. So thank you for everybody, uh, particularly Anne and Mel and, and Hannah and everyone behind the scenes who's uh, pulled everything together to hopefully have a smooth event this evening. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it's uh, my pleasure now to hand over to Joseph Goldstein. Joseph uh, has been a absolute leading light in the loving kind in the uh, insight and loving kindness meditation retreat movement. Uh, he has been leading retreats uh, uh, since 1974 all around the world, uh, and is uh, one of the co-founders uh, and now a guiding teacher at the Insight Meditation Society in Bar, Massachusetts. I, I kind of think of. Of the, of the Insight Meditation Society as, as Guy House's big sister in the States. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, it has been a, a very um, strong uh, influence on, on Guy House over the years. Uh, Joseph's also uh, helped to establish the, the Bar Centre for Buddhist Studies over there and is author, the author of uh, many wonderful books. Anyway, enough of that. Over to you, Joseph. Thank you for joining us this evening. Great. Well, um, just switching to gallery view here. <laughs> okay. Uh, so it's great to be with you all. So we would start with um, <clears throat> just a short meditation as a way of just settling in, uh, getting centered a little bit. Um, so we'll sit for about 10 minutes, take, take a comfortable posture, and I'll do a little bit of uh, guidance during the sit. So yes, take a, a, a meditative posture. Uh, you know, so <clears throat> some posture that keeps you reasonably alert. Um, as I'm sure many of you know, usually in this tradition we sit with the eyes closed, but of course it's also possible uh, to sit with eyes open. You know, look generally downcast if that's what you're used to. Um, so settling in taking a few deep breaths, just as a way of uh, settling into the body, becoming aware of the body, the body posture. So sit and know you're sitting. 
phrase that I found helpful uh, to repeat occasionally as a reminder. Um, it's a phrase that comes from the Satipatthana Sutta, the foundations, uh, the four foundations of mindfulness. It's just the simple phrase, there is a body. I found using that phrase <clears throat> is a helpful reminder to simply settle into the awareness of the whole body. There is a body. And as you're sitting within that framework, there is a body. You may become aware of the body breathing. Breathing in, know you're breathing in. Breathing out, know you're breathing out. So it's that simple. Keep in mind that it's not a breathing exercise, but an exercise in awareness. So we can simply let the breath find its own natural rhythm. Doesn't have to be any particular way. We're simply mindful of the sensations, the feelings of each breath as it presents itself. Within the framework, there is a body. You may become aware of other bodily sensations. Call your attention. You can open to the feeling of those sensations, feeling them, noticing how they change. And returning to the awareness of the whole body and the body breathing.
And stay alert for the arising of any thoughts or images in the mind. As soon as you become aware that the mind is thinking, it might be helpful to make just a soft mental acknowledgement thinking or seeing if it's an image as a way of supporting the mindfulness of the thinking process. Breathing in, know you're breathing in. <clears throat> breathing out, know you're breathing out. open to any predominant sensations that may be calling your attention, opening to the sensations, feeling them, noticing their changing nature. And again, coming back and settling into it, the awareness that is the body and the body breathing.
and be aware of thoughts or images as they appear in the mind. Breathing in, know you're breathing in. Breathing out, know you're breathing out. And when you're ready, you can gently open your eyes. Be aware of seeing just connecting with the world around you. So uh, this afternoon, this afternoon here in Barry, Massachusetts, uh, I'd like to talk about different ways we can use our meditative understanding, meditative understanding of our minds in dealing with uh, some pretty unprecedented challenges you know, that we all face in these times. Uh, there's so much going on in the world. You know, of course, <clears throat> there's the worldwide pandemic, which <clears throat> is having huge consequences for so many people's lives. There's all the um, stress of the political arena, uh, certainly here in the States, you know, with this last election and uh, I imagine in each place that you're living in, it has its own political stresses. Uh, so things are going on that, that can create uh, all kinds of difficult feelings and difficult emotions, you know, in our lives. Uh, maybe there's fear because of the uncertainty of what's going to happen or anxiety. Um, maybe sometimes anger. Lots of different things can be coming up. So I wanted to talk about uh, four or five ways we can uh, relate to our mind states in a way that can navigate these difficult emotions uh, that may be coming and that we may be getting caught in, to navigate them and to actually have them be a source of greater insight into our own mind and really be part of our path uh, toward liberation. So I'll mention four or five different strategies that I've been experimenting with and exploring myself in these times, because um, I think all of us in one way or another uh, have been subject you know, to, the, to the stresses of what is going on now. Um, so there are a few basic principles that we can really apply in this situation. And the first is um, looking at looking to see what our relationship is to the perhaps painful emotions that are arising. You know, so if fear is arising or anxiety is arising uh, or sadness is arising, grief, whatever it may be. So the first step uh, 
in the meditative process, you know, in seeing how we can work with these emotions in a way that's on with leading, on with leading with freedom, uh, is to get okay with feeling them. That it's okay to feel them. Um, but this is not, uh, this is often not the first response we have because uh, many of these emotions are painful and they're a source of suffering. And our first reaction might not be, oh, good, let me open to this. You know, often there is a resistance or an aversion or a contraction. Uh, you know, it doesn't feel good when we're feeling anxiety or when we're feeling fear. So we need to remind ourselves that mindfulness means acceptance of the fact that they're there. And this points to quite a radical statement of the Buddha, which uh, has always inspired me a lot, uh, but it's very, it's very striking. And he said that as long as there's attachment to the pleasant and aversion to the unpleasant, liberation is impossible. So that's, I find that a very strong statement because uh, for most of us, we're very deeply conditioned, you know, to to want and, and be attached to what's pleasant. We want more of it and to have aversion or resistance or not liking the unpleasant, you know, and to push away. And this is really the, one might say, almost the normal way of being in the world. You know, we go for what's pleasant and we try to avoid what's unpleasant. The Buddha is pointing out here that that conditioned reaction, that conditioned response just keeps us locked in to patterns of suffering. So there's a, a very strong um, instruction really that we need to be mindful of pleasant and unpleasant feeling, you know, which is as many of you probably know, the second of the four foundations of mindfulness. Mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of feeling. And feeling here means pleasantness or unpleasantness. So the first step, if we are experiencing unpleasant emotions in response to either what's happening in the world outside or in you know, our own individual lives, if some unpleasant emotion is arising, the first step is to remind oneself it's okay to feel this. Right? Let me open to it. Let me feel it. And here we can begin to see the difference between the mindful experience of something unpleasant and aversion. You know, we can experience an unpleasantness, whether it's a physical sensation in the body or an unpleasant emotion. But if we're mindful, we are actually opening to the mindful experience of unpleasantness without reactivity. So this takes some training, <laughs> this takes some practice, you know, because as I said, it, it may not be our, our first reaction, you know, to some painful experience, you know, that it's okay, it's okay to feel it. There's another point here, which is related and uh, which was very revealing for me in my own practice. And that is to understand the difference between recognition and mindfulness. 
because often people conflate the two. And we think that if we recognize what's present, it means that we're being mindful. But recognition and mindfulness are two really quite different things because we can recognize what's present through a filter of wanting or aversion, you know, or delusion. Just, uh, and so we recognize what's there. Oh, yes, this is anxiety. This is fear. But we can be pushing against it or contracting in the face of it. So even though we're recognizing, we're not actually being mindful. It's important to build on the recognition. So we need to recognize what's there and to take the next step. Can I be with this without reactivity? Can I be open to it? Can I be with the unpleasantness with equanimity? So this is an important, an important instruction, not only uh, for these times of stress in the world, but for the un whole unfolding of our meditation practice, leading all the way you know, to enlightenment, to awakening. Mindfulness of the unpleasant. It's okay. We, we can feel it. We can come close to it. And in that mindfulness, the mind is actually in a place <clears throat> of rest, of ease. So that's the first thing that I think is really important to look at. Uh, because as I say, the initial conditioned reaction will probably not be that quality of acceptance. You know, something painful comes and there's just this very strong conditioning uh, not to like it, not to want it. Uh, <clears throat> so mindfulness of the unpleasant, and particularly in these circumstances uh, of unpleasant emotions, painful emotions. And it's really analogous to the same way we would be with the experience of pain in the body. You know, as most of you know, you're most of you are probably experienced meditators. So you know that a lot of the practice is settling into the awareness of physical <coughs> discomfort. And it's okay. You know, we can be mindful of that in an economist way. So there's another uh, very interesting investigation we can make with regard to um, different emotions uh, and particularly uh, difficult emotions that may be arising you know in, in very challenging times <clears throat> and that is to see the relationship or the the conditionality of thought and emotion and i found this to be extremely interesting just watching in my mind how a thought can appear, you know, maybe it's a thought about the pandemic or a thought about certain uh, situation in our lives or even thoughts of just different people. You know, a thought can appear in the mind and quickly, almost immediately, that thought can trigger, can condition an emotion. And it may be about something that is not actually happening in the moment. Rather, it's a thought about something. And it may be a thought about <clears throat> a larger present circumstance, or it may be a thought about something that happened in the past, or a thought about what might happen in the future. You know, so these uh, different, these kinds of thoughts arise, 
And it's very interesting to watch how thought appears and often very quickly, there is an emotional response to that thought. I found it uh, extremely interesting just to watch this play of thought conditioning emotion. And it works the opposite also. <clears throat> Emotions then can condition the arising of more thoughts. And so we stay in this loop. It's very helpful uh, <clears throat> to be very mindful of this process so that if we can be mindful of the thought as a thought, It's not, the thought is not the actual situation. The, the thought is something that's arising in our own mind. If we can see it just as a thought, then even if it does trigger an emotion, which it might, but if we're mindful of that whole process, we're no longer so caught up or identified with the emotion. And we begin to see it really as just this impersonal process going on. You know, thought arises, conditions emotion, but we're in that place of awareness, of mindfulness, of watching the process and, and even taking interest in it. So mindfulness of thought and how they condition emotion is tremendously helpful. Um, and this takes some practice because as I'm sure most of you know, uh, thoughts are very slippery. You know, we can be sitting open to the body, feeling the breath, and thoughts seem to just slide in and they don't have as much impact, you know, like uh, tangible contact as even a sound or certainly a sensation. So they kind of slide in and very often, we're not aware for some time that we're even thinking. So part of our practice is to set the intention, you know, uh, even as we're <clears throat> being mindful of the body and being mindful of the breath, the sensations, but to set the intention, stay alert for the arising of thought in the mind or the arising of image. Uh, so we set that intention and it will <clears throat> help us perhaps become aware of them uh, more quickly. There's one Zen story, which uh, I really like, and it has tremendous implication uh, for uh, what I've been talking about. It seems like there was this old Zen monk living up in a cave in the mountains uh, in Japan, and who's a great artist. Uh, and for some reason or other, he spent his time in the cave uh, painting uh, a tiger, you know, on, on the wall of the cave. And he was such a brilliant artist uh, and he spent a long time, the story goes, he spent, you know, a couple of years uh, creating this painting. And he did it uh, with such skill and it was so realistic that when he finally finished it, he looked at it and got frightened. So we can perhaps, you know, smile at, in a way, the ridiculousness of that, you know, getting frightened at a painting on the wall of a cave. But actually we do the same thing because every time we are reacting to a thought in the mind about something that is not actually happening in the moment, that thought is like a painted tiger. You know, we may have a thought about something that's gonna arise in the future or something that happened in the past. 
So it's not actually happening now. We're simply having a thought about it, but we're not aware of it as a thought. We take it to be real in a certain way, and then we have these big emotional responses to that thought. And so we are we are responding like that monk looking at the painting, you know, look at the painted tiger, looked at and got frightened. Now it is helpful to distinguish between painted tigers and real tigers. <laughs> it is possible he went outside of his cave and maybe there was a tiger and he needed to take some response. So there are there are actual situations in our lives that need response. You know, and we need to we need to be aware of that. However, I would guess that the vast majority of times that our minds are being reactive to one thing or another, they are really being reactive to painted tigers, these painted tigers in our minds. And so it might be interesting for you even to use that as a you know soft mental note, a little mental label. Uh, <clears throat> If you're sitting or just going through your day, you're in the course of your daily life and you feel like you're getting caught up in some unskillful mind state or emotion, uh, you know, whether it's worry or anxiety or fear or what, whatever it might be. And then to see, okay, what is the thought that triggered that emotion? And is it actually a situation and experience that is happening right now? Or is it simply a thought in the mind about something that either did happen or might happen, but is not happening in the moment? And so then you, you might even make that little note, oh, paint a tiger or paint a tiger. Um, and it just helps. It helps to free the mind from entanglement, you know, in this thought emotional, this thought emotion uh, mutual conditioning you know, the one with the other. Uh, I have found this really helpful because with so much going on in the world, you know, and <clears throat> how that affects all the experiences of our own individual personal lives, there's so much that's arising within us. So we need to really uh, develop some discernment, you know, about what's a real tiger, what's a painted tiger, what's, what's the appropriate response, is it helpful just to see it as a thought and let it go? If it triggers an emotion, can we be open to it even if it's unpleasant? Not only recognizing it, but being mindful, mean, meaning non-reactive. You know, it's okay to feel it, whatever it is. You know, the anxiety or the fear or the uncertainty or the doubt or the worry. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay has become uh, one of my favorite mantras. Okay, so one is opening to the unpleasantness. One is seeing the relationship of thought and emotion and seeing <clears throat> you know, what really needs responding to and what doesn't, what is simply a thought in the mind and recognizing that as such. There will be times when we may do all of this, you know, but still we're caught, you know, for whatever reason that we're really in some kind of um, distress, emotional distress. Um, sometimes that translates into physical distress. Uh, so sometimes we may just be caught, you know, in, in 
this kind of storm in the mind. Something else that is very helpful to remember is <clears throat> that we can change the channels. You know, if we are if we're just immersed in the worry channel or the fear channel, and we try doing all these things, we try being mindful, we try opening, but for whatever reason, you know, at that particular time, we don't have the uh, capacity kind of to extricate ourselves from the identification with it all. You know, and so we're caught in some way. It's possible to change the channels, the channel in the mind. So sometimes I think of, uh, you know, the mind is, uh, it's just like watching watching TV and uh, with mindfulness, it's like we're holding the remote, you know, and if we're on a worry channel or a fear channel, click the remote. How about going to a meta channel, you know, and just um, starting starting doing some meta meditation or uh, a compassion channel, you know, and so so we're we're taking taking the mind from a place of suffering, from a, from a suffering channel to a channel of greater ease. This is very helpful to do because uh, <clears throat> once we have established a little more spaciousness within ourselves, from having changed the channels, giving ourselves a little rest, a little respite, you know, from whatever storm was going on in the mind. Uh, so we find some rest, we find some ease in a more skillful mind state, more skillful channel. Then after some time, we may, we may feel that we have the inner strength or the inner resilience to then open up again <clears throat> directly to the difficult emotion, you know, or open up to the train of thoughts that are going through uh, our minds without the reactivity, without getting lost in them. So don't underestimate the value of this ability to actually choose what channel of the mind we want to be on. Uh, it's, it's really a great strength. Okay, so there's <laughs> opening, being mindful of the unpleasantness, but it's okay to feel unpleasantness. This is part of our practice of really uh, investigating and taking an interest in how thoughts condition emotion. Uh, and it's <laughs> just as I said, I, I found it super interesting uh, that we do this. You know, sometimes, sometimes I might be sitting, you know, and, and I'll have a thought about somebody um, either that, you know, I have a lot of love for, or I might have some difficulty with. And I'm just sitting there, you know, meditating more or less, you know, trying to be mindful. And this thought comes and the person is not there, but just the thought of the person can trigger an emotion, you know, one way or another. Okay, paint the tiger. We really want to practice that so we don't continually get caught. Changing channels. There's one other, one other aspect of, of being with thought that I want to mention. And it's something that um, I just found tremendously uh, liberating and interesting. So when we're caught up 
in a long, elaborate thought process, you know, and we may try to be mindful, but somehow we're still hooked, you know, we're being carried along. A very interesting question to ask, which very few people ever ask in their lives, is what is a thought? Not what is the thought saying, but what is the thought as a phenomenon? At those times when we are having a whole train of thoughts, so this is an easy time to do that because the thoughts are already there. If we can remember, even in the midst of it, you know, to step back and ask the question, but what is a thought? It's, it's super interesting because when we look directly at the nature of thought, we see that it's really little more than nothing. You know, it's so insubstantial uh, you know, and in a way transparent. It's just this little energy blip that's arising in the mind, but we get seduced into a relationship with the content. And we're missing the essentially empty nature of thought itself. Uh, this, is, this is hugely helpful because unnoticed thoughts which are most of them, you know, in our lives, uh, have tremendous power to um, condition and influence our lives. They, they're, I call them the little dictators of the mind. You know, the thoughts come, go here, go there, do this, do that. And we're just we're kind of the slaves of our thoughts. And yet when we look, become mindful and really look, okay, what is a thought, we see that it's, as I said, it's little more than nothing. Uh, so once we understand that, it really opens up the place of tremendous freedom. We're not so, <clears throat> we're not so caught or imprisoned by this ongoing uh, stream of thoughts that happen throughout the day. Uh, and it provides the space for discernment. <clears throat> so then when we have that understanding, oh, your thoughts in their nature are empty or insubstantial, but in and of themselves, they have no power. The only power thoughts have is the power we give them. So when we have that understanding increasingly, you know, through practice, then it opens up the possibility, the space in the mind for real discernment about which thoughts we should act on and which thoughts we should simply let go, let pass through. So it doesn't imply in action, uh, but rather, <clears throat> rather it, it suggests or leads to uh, a tremendous state of, um, you could say resilience and pliability of mind. So that's another way that we can work with the kinds of thoughts that may be arising uh, during these times, but also in, in uh, more easeful times as well because the same process is going on. Okay, there are two more, there are two more uh, suggestions for how we can work with our minds you know, in these times. And that is um, something the Buddha talked a lot about in the discourses. Uh, and that is appreciating the value of concentration. 
of actually taking time uh, to really develop the strength of concentration. Uh, that this is a capacity of the mind. Um, and regardless of where we're starting from, uh, it can be developed. And I know this because when I started my practice, uh, I had almost zero concentration. You know, when I was at university, I studied philosophy. And then afterwards I uh, went to the Peace Corps in Thailand and then I was in India practicing, you know, for quite a while. And when I first started, uh, my mind was just thinking all the time, you know, and enjoying it. You know, it's like the hour went quickly and I was entertaining myself. But there was, there was almost no concentration. It took me quite a while and through various practices to develop some degree of concentration, you know, enough that I could then really begin to use my mind uh, in skillful ways. You know, to really investigate the nature of what was happening. Uh, so for me, one of the ways of developing the concentration that was quite effective um, uh, in those early years, I did about a six or seven week uh, meta retreat, just doing loving kindness, which is its own concentration practice. Uh, and that was really the first time, you know, after spending quite a long time of having tried to uh, just be mindful, you know, in, in Vipassana mode, but finding my mind just wandered a lot. So then I did that period of concentration practice and the mind did develop enough strength and steadiness and stability to then re-engage with the inside practice on a whole different level. You know, and there are many ways of developing concentration. You might find just the, the approach that appeals to you or inspires you. You know, it could be working with the breath. It could be working with metta. Um, there are many, there are many different objects of concentration that one could explore. It's said traditionally that concentration suppresses the defilements, which means that for that period of time when the mind is concentrated, the defilements are not, are not operative. Now, in, often we hear the word, oh, suppress the defilements. Well, I don't want to do that. Suppression is not a good thing. But this, it, this is not the unskillful kind of suppression. This is actually the suppression uh, of just putting unskillful states aside for a period of time in order to develop the strength of mind to then engage with them more skillfully. Uh, so actually this putting aside of the defilements through the power of some degree of concentration can be a really skillful thing to do. The last, the last approach that I'd like to suggest um, in working with whatever you know, challenges are coming up during these times. Um, and for, for some, they may be quite uh, extreme, but I think for almost everybody, there's, there's just a general feeling of uh, tremendous uncertainty, you know, and, and difficulty with what's going on these days. So the last thing I want to mention is as different um, difficult emotions might get triggered, 
you know, and we find ourselves caught up in them. Even after, you know, we may have tried some of the things I suggested. It's very helpful to remember and to remember often that whatever it is that's arising in the mind and the heart is impermanent. Because often when there's a strong emotion, you know, that's conditioned by powerful forces either within ourselves or in the world outside, and it triggers some strong emotional response. A common tendency is to have the feeling that this is going to be here forever. <laughs> you know, it just feels like we're so in it, you know, so immersed in it. And it, even though rationally we know that it's not, but you know, emotionally we have that feeling, oh, the whole, if not the rest of my life, at least the rest of the week or the rest of the month, whatever. We forget or we don't remind ourselves that however strong the emotion might be, it is impermanent. It is not there all the time. And even during a period of time where it may recur, you know, maybe things are happening in your lives and, you know, the worry comes back again and again, or, you know, the anxiety comes back again and again. But that doesn't mean that it's there all the time. It's not, you know, those emotions are there. And they're there for some time. And then we have other experiences, lots of other experiences that may be, uh, even neutral or even pleasant. And then perhaps the warrior anxiety comes back. So both to remind ourselves of the impermanence, but in a way even more important is to actually see the impermanence, to be paying careful enough attention, even if we find, feel ourselves caught in what's happening, but to be watchful enough so that we're in it and we're in it and we're trying to be mindful you know, maybe we are to some extent, but then lost. But if we keep, you know, really keep paying attention as best we can, we will see that at a certain point, we're having a completely different experience. You know, maybe we're just out for a walk and enjoying nature, or maybe the mind goes just to the breath or being with the body, or um, we have other kinds of thoughts and emotions arising. It's all a flow of change. This is so helpful to remember because it helps us really maintain a kind of balance and ease with the flow of changing phenomena. So these are some of the, uh, the different strategies that I've used during these times because uh, like many of you, uh, it's impossible not to be affected by what's going on in the world. You know, we all are. Uh, but our practice is to learn how to be with whatever uh, our experiences might be, to really use it as um, the grist for our practice. We can learn, we can actually make it all part of the path and part of understanding the nature of suffering and the possibility of freedom, right in the midst of the challenges, right in the midst of the difficulties. It's like 
if the mind is suffering? Can it pique your interest? Okay, what's going on here? How am I relating to what's happening that's causing the suffering? Uh, and so it becomes a very useful um, opportunity to really deepen our practice and our understanding. So I hope that some of these suggestions may be uh, of help to you. Um, I think we have some time now. If you have any questions or comments, I'd be glad to uh, try and respond as best I can. Thank you, Joseph. So uh, if anyone would like to either um, click on uh, the, the raise hand button, which may be in the, uh, in the participants um, section of your, uh, your, your Zoom screen, uh, you can click on that and hopefully a little blue hand will raise up on, on, on my screen here and I can invite you to speak. Uh, or if you'd like to, you can type your question into the chat room and I'll read it out on your behalf. So um, I think there are a couple of things uh, in, in, embedded in your question. One is in terms of, you know, that urge wanting to respond in some way and then getting caught up in, well, what do I do? And, you know, attachment to having, having a result. There's one phrase, there's one expression, which I have found uh, so helpful in, in understanding compassionate response. You know, okay, so we, we become aware of, of situations of suffering, you know, in the world or in ourselves. So this phrase, which was actually the title of a book, you know, back in the 70s, the name of the book was, How Can I Help? And just that phrase, how can I help? For me, it opens up or connects me uh, to the immediacy of my present moment experience and seeing, okay, is there something I can do to help in this moment or not? And sometimes there is, and sometimes there isn't. But the question is so simple. That's why, so it's, it's not like some uh, preconception you know, of what we should do to solve the problems of the world. It's much, it's much more humble, you know, it's, uh, so just, just as an example, um, just the other day, a, a friend told me about some people who live near Barry and really in very difficult circumstances, don't even have enough money for heat, you know, and winter is coming and she's working a lot to try to help you know, these group of people. And she was just telling me this. And I so internalized that thought, well, how can I help? So just spontaneously, oh, I could, I can, I can help out, you know, with just an offer of some generosity for these people who are local, you know, they're right here, they need the help. What can I do? You know, so I think there's an immediacy and a simplicity if we hold it in that way, rather than kind of, trying to take on the whole big is issue and then figuring out, oh my God, what could I ever do, <laughs> you know? So there's another piece which you indicated. So the first is just the simplicity of asking that question right in this situation, how can I help? Is there something I can do or not? And recognizing that sometimes there isn't. The second piece, and this is, uh, 
a general principle, which I think has a lot of application here, is to act without attachment to the result, without expectation for the result, because so many different conditions influence how things are gonna work out. And we just have one small part of the whole big picture. And so we can do what we do, you know, and try to help in whatever way we can. But if we have an expectation for it to turn out a certain way, that is the setup for suffering because it's outside of our control. And this applies a lot also to our meditation practice. You know, how often do we bring expectation to our meditation? We go in and we have some expectation of, we want it to be a certain way and then it's not. And we get involved in all kinds of, of suffering because of that. So freeing the mind from that attachment to result uh, is just tremendously helpful, which doesn't mean not doing things. You know, we do respond in whatever way seems appropriate, but without that attachment. Uh, and I think you would find a lot greater ease then, you know, and a lot more energy to continue to help because you're not getting, getting discouraged if the result is not exactly what you wanted it to be. So I think, it, it, I think it's quite workable and would be very interesting for you uh, to explore these possibilities. Uh, the, the, the questions are really flooding in now. So thank you so much for all your enthusiasm. Um, can, I, can I read a couple from the chats that people have sent in? Um, and I think I'm, I'm going to fold a couple into one for you, Joseph, to, to uh, see if you can um, maybe uh, address them both. Um, what if the emotion is sorrow, uh, particularly sorrow on behalf of the so many people who suffer in the world, like people in refugee camps? Um, you know, what if it's not a painted tiger? What if it's real? Uh, and, and kind of, I thought this was a little bit related, um, but uh, it's also, I think, maybe different. Uh, so this, you know, points out that how compelling the news is. And, and uh, you know, have you got any uh, thoughts about how we can break the habit of news addiction? So in looking at the external <laughs> world, the suffering world, how do we have yeah, to relate yeah. to this? Yeah. So uh, the first, in response to the first question, I think it points to uh, really the first point, point I mentioned. So sorrow, it's not surprising that sorrow may be coming up given what's happening in the world. And in a way it reflects kind of open-heartedness, you know, that we're actually letting it in and having that kind of response. Then, then the question is, how are we relating to the sorrow? You know, are we drowning in the sorrow? Are we being overwhelmed by the sorrow? Or can we open to the feeling? You know, so yeah, it's really settling into, into the heart, mind, body of it all and feeling, oh, sorrow feels like this. This is what sorrow is about. But that's very different than being lost in it. It's almost like, we're open to the feeling of it. So we're really, we're, we're taking it in and we're feeling it, but we're relating in a way that we're not, as I said, we're not drowning in it. We're not being overwhelmed by it. And then the sorrow could be the condition for compassion to arise, you know, because 
the cause for compassion to arise is a willingness to come close to suffering. You know, if, if we're closed off to suffering, then the wellspring of compassion is going to be capped because it's only in our ability or our willingness or this suffering either within ourselves or in the world, our willingness to come close to it, to feel it, that's going to be the uh, prompt for compassion arising and that sense of, okay, well, how can I help? So the feeling of sorrow could, if we're relating to it in an open, mindful, aware way, uh, that could actually be the first step because that sorrow is indicating already that we're willing to come close to the suffering. We are letting it in, which is why we're feeling the sorrow. But then instead of staying just with that, we can, we can let that be the foundation for a compassionate response. And Thich Nhat Hanh had a wonderful phrase. Uh, he said, compassion is a verb, you know? So compassion really implies some action that we take, whatever it might be, but, but there's a response to the suffering. Uh, so I would just see the sorrow as a stepping stone to compassion and compassionate response. So in and of itself, I don't see that as a difficulty, but it becomes a difficulty if we're not um, holding it in a skillful way, you know, and if we're just getting identified and overwhelmed by it. There's a, there's a, uh, a teaching which is expressed, there are two kinds of suffering. There's the suffering which leads to more suffering, and there's a suffering which leads to the end of suffering, right? And all of that has to do with how we're relating to the suffering or the sorrow, you know, that may be arising. Is it simply leading to more suffering or is it leading to the end of suffering? You know, which is that whole pathway of compassion. In terms of the other question of, you know, just how much, how much the news is impacting us these days, this is particularly strong here in the States these last couple of weeks with the election, which has been, it's, been, it's just been so intense, you know, and I noticed in myself and many, most of my friends and you know, the, this endless checking on the news, you know, 10 times a day, checking in on the polls and whatever, and realized how much agitation that was causing. Uh, and so realized kind of need to titrate the amount of information, you know, that we're taking in, that we don't have to, we don't have to be engaging with it uh, 50 times a day. You know, it may be, maybe once a day is enough or twice a day is enough. And so we're just giving our whole system a chance to absorb what we really need to understand, but also times of relief from that, you know, so that we can establish some strength and, and equilibrium again uh, before the next hit of news, you know. And this, I think this is a situation very uh, particular to our times and the technology. You know, we're living in a new world where the technology is so pervasive and we're just bombarded uh, continually, you know, by the news. And we have to learn how to, to manage that in a skillful way. Thank you, Joseph.
Good. I think that's an interesting question. Um, so I think it would it would be worth investigating that mind state or feeling that you're calling hope, because that word could cover a, a range of different experiences. So some kinds of hope embedded right in it might be expectation. You know, oh, I hope that this will happen. And it's flavored by the expectation that it will, well, as I just mentioned, that's gonna be a setup for suffering because just there are many more forces at work of whether something is gonna happen or not. Uh, for me, the word that, I'll just back up a minute. Sometimes kind of in the Buddhist uh, framework, uh, hope and fear are linked, you know, because hope is wanting something to happen and fear is a fear that it won't happen, you know? And so very often those two get linked together. And again, that's not, a, that's not such a skillful uh, approach. The word I like, which I think might hold what, what you mean by hope in a more skillful way is aspiration. You know, and I, I often use that word uh, as in contrast to expectation. You know, so we can have aspiration for many skillful things. And that aspiration is important because it sets our direction. You know, if we have an aspiration and then it's clear to us, then we can see, okay, well, what will be onward leading toward that? But for me, that word doesn't, uh, expectation is not embedded in that. You know, it's, it is just that aspiration of what I feel or uh, what I hope will be helpful or skillful. So I would just look carefully at what you're calling hope and teasing out that part which is skillful and that part which is unskillful. Uh, thank you, Joseph. Do you, can I offer you another one from the chat room? Sure. Yeah. Do you have any suggestions for dealing with trauma reactions, collapse and overwhelm? Well, trauma reactions, this, this is kind of an important subset, you know, of uh, kind of responses that we may be having. And it takes a lot of care. And I don't feel like I am actually an expert in working with trauma, although, um, you know, it does come up, of course, on meditation retreats and know how to work with it generally in that context, in terms of really backing off somewhat from the trigger, you know, because if a trauma has been triggered and there is overwhelm, most of our experience has been, it's not that wise to try to dig in deep and uh, get to the bottom of it and, you know, trying to force a resolution. A lot more care is needed, a lot more gentleness is needed in the approach. And there are a lot of uh, people who have done, uh, you know, fantastic work in working with trauma. Um, and there's a, there's a recent book that's out uh, I think his name is David Trelevin, and I don't remember something about mindfulness and trauma, uh, where he really talks and goes into quite a bit of detail about how to use mindfulness practice in working 
with trauma in a skillful way so it doesn't go to overwhelm. Uh, and so what I really would say is it does take care. I wouldn't try to push through it. I would look for some resources either in person or through books uh, of people who have really developed a deep understanding of skillful ways of working with it. Uh, it takes a lot of care and I would take that care with it. Thank you, Joseph. Yeah, uh, so that's a, uh, <laughs> an interesting question. So that quote from the Buddha was, uh, it was something like uh, anger with its poisoned source and honeyed tip, you know? And I, I think it's not difficult to relate to that because often anger, uh, you know, it makes us feel strong and we feel right. And there's, there's often a kind of self-righteousness in it, you know? And so there's a sense of, a certain sense of power and strength that's coming from that emotion, which is very seductive. So I think it, it's really important again, to be mindful of that, you know, and so that we're really watching our mind and discerning all of these different elements of the, of the experience of anger. So to experience mindfully what we're calling the honey tip, you know, that's maybe that surge of power or, or self-righteousness, whatever it is, uh, so we really recognize that and see that in the midst of the experience. And then also looking to what the Buddha called the poison source, the poison root, which means can we see or can in the midst of the experience, when we're in the middle of it, to look at the honey tip, but also to look, okay, well, what's the suffering aspect in this? And that also is not hard to feel, you know, because I think we can often feel the the tightness or the contraction or the aversion, you know, or the separation, the, the distancing from either the situation or whoever we may uh, be angry with. That there was another thought in my mind that <laughs> just came and went <laughs> with regard to this. Um, yeah, if, it, if I think of it, <laughs> I'll come back. I'll come back to you. Yeah, it's <laughs> gone. <laughs> A good, a good, a good ongoing teaching in impermanence, <laughs> which, which, by the way, just increases with age. <laughs> You're very welcome to come back to that, Joseph. I, I, I noticed a, a couple of people, uh, um, Joseph, in the in the chat who who were asking, um, uh, and, I, and I, I, I can identify this question a little bit myself. Have you got any advice or support for? Uh, teaching mindfulness to, to young children? Not having young children or any children. <laughs> I'm not sure I'm the, I'm the best person to ask about this. Uh, uh, as, with, as with the question about trauma, uh, there are a lot of good books about this. Um, so I would, I would definitely uh, you know, investigate in that way. But the one principle, underlying principle, um, is that, and this is true both with children and everybody else, that the most significant communication is not through what we say, but how we are, you know? And that is what's going to be communicated on the most basic and fundamental level. And so, 
if we are mindful, if we are less reactive, if we are less judgmental, you know, if, if we're less caught up in our own emotional stories, that is that is uh, communicating that, you know, to to the kids or to everybody around us. So I would I wouldn't um, underestimate the power of that because for me that seems uh, the foundation. And then on top of that, you know, there are lots of exercises, you know, mindfulness games uh, for for kids. Um, and I would just I would just explore, uh, you know, the literature on it because there's a lot. Uh, and I, I've, a lot of my friends, I work with kids, you know, in, in teaching mindfulness, and it's hugely uh, successful. But there was, there's one story that's just coming to mind about that. So there was a mindfulness program in uh, kind of one of the rougher inner city schools, and I forgot what city it was in, uh, but where where kids, um, you know, came from very challenging circumstances and, um, you know, were often involved in school with a lot of uh, aggression and, you know, acting out. But then they did this mindfulness program. And I forget how long, maybe it was a six week program where they were teaching the kids mindfulness. And then the story is, which, which I just heard recently. Uh, so one, something happened. There was an altercation between two kids, you know, and, and the one of the kids had pushed the other one up against the wall and and was kind of about to hit them. And then they paused and the person said, you should be glad I meditate. <laughs> and then stepped back from it. <laughs> so in terms of the efficacy, uh, you know, in terms of working with kids, even in, even in that, you know, rather challenging circumstance, it's quite amazing the effect it can have, you know, just teaching, teaching some basic, you know, mindfulness skills. It, it's a beautiful thing to be uh, sharing with kids, you know, and so I would, I would certainly, you know, hope, hope you explore that in a full way. And there's a lot out there, you know, about how to do this. Thanks, Joseph. I do see it in the same way. Uh, although for the very reason that you expressed in your understanding of the complexity of emotion, that it's not a, it's not a single thing. And emotion is a whole complex, you know, as you said, of bodily sensations and thoughts and maybe images and the mental tone, the affect in the mind and the, uh, what distinguishes one motion, emotion from another, what I call the the specific coloration of the mind in different emotions. So that's what makes it a little more difficult than the relatively simple, although not done very often, of asking, well, what is a thought? You know, so that, that's very simple and direct, and I think we can see it quite quickly. One of the ways of seeing the empty nature of the emotion is really to do just what you said in terms of unpacking the whole experience so that we don't see it as some unified something that is really made up of a lot of component parts and actually focusing then, uh, and you might take it one by one, 
you know, in the midst of some emotion, take some time and focus, okay, well, what are the thoughts which are triggering it? Or what are the thoughts which are expressing it? You know, and so you focus just on the thought aspect. And then maybe take some time where you're focusing just on the physical sensations of it. And as you dive in or, or you know, explore the physical sensations, then it's possible to really be seeing, depending on the level of concentration, you know, with, with increasing, increasing refinement, uh, the changing nature of the sensations. You know, they're not as solid as they feel. The, the sensations within an emotion are continually changing and moving. And so by seeing that, it, again, it begins to uh, break up the sense of solidity of it. And it is very interesting to, again, go back to what I said in the talk in terms of really seeing the conditionality of thought and emotion, to see what triggered the emotion. Right? Uh, and just to watch that process. So I'll just give you an example. Uh, when I first began to notice how quickly thoughts can trigger an emotion, I, I just got really interested in watching this. So I remember I was just going for a walk here, you know, in Barry, Massachusetts. And um, at that particular time, there was some kind of meeting coming up. I think it was an IMS board meeting. Uh, and there was something, this is quite a few years ago, so I don't remember the details, uh, but there was some sense of foreboding because there was some big conflict going on that had to be resolved. And so as I was going for the walk, I had, a thought came about the meeting and immediately I could feel a little anxiety. Yeah. And I just watched it, I thought the thought, anxiety. And it interested me so much in just seeing how, it, how one triggered the other, that then I just started playing. So I intentionally started thinking the thoughts to see how they triggered the emotion, <laughs> you know? So I was just playing with this process in the mind, you know, and investigating it. Uh, and in that way, in seeing the conditionality of thought, of emotion, I say, oh yeah, the, the thought, it was just a thought, <laughs> that's all it was, creating this, you know, this complex response and watching it go back and forth like that, that really, again, uh, it weakens the sense of the emotion being something solid and fixed and substantial. So there's a phrase by a Sri Lankan monk um, who died recently, but he was quite a quite a renowned uh, both scholar and meditation master. He talked about things being circumstantial, not substantial. You know, and I like that phrase because the phrase just kind of encapsulated the idea that there's nothing that's substantial. Rather, everything that's arising is circumstantial, meaning conditions come together and the experience is there. The conditions change and the experience changes. So seeing that, you know, seeing the circumstantial nature, the conditionality of it also reveals the essentially empty nature, you know, that there is nothing substantial in it. Um, and also, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, um, just noticing the impermanence of it. You know, so even when an emotion is really strong and we're in it and we're relating in whatever way we are, the 
more mindfully or a little less mindfully, but at a certain point it goes, but paying attention to its impermanence. That also, uh, the Buddha talked about how insight into impermanence is really the doorway to the understanding of anatta or selflessness or insubstantiality, you know? So, um, yeah, it, it's using our insight into impermanence in that way too. Yeah, I just want to, I'll back up one, <laughs> one minute. One of the, one of the things that I notice in myself, which I have kind of appreciated in my own practice and life is over all these years of practice, I've come to a point where for the most part, it's, <laughs> it's not perfect yet, but for the most part, when I'm suffering in one way or another, it piques my interest. So rather than it being kind of some, you know, struggle that I'm drowning in, if I'm suffering, it really starts to, well, what's happening? What is going on in my mind that's creating the suffering? And it's never about an external situation. You know, the situation may cause different emotions to arise within us, but how we're relating to that emotion is totally up to us. You know, and if we put the blame for how we're feeling on others, we're giving up our agency. You know, we're really giving up our power. When we realize, yeah, different emotions are going to arise, you know, depending on what's going on. But how we relate to them is 100% up to us. And that's where the interest comes. Okay, how am I relating to what's happening that's causing suffering? Yeah. And that gets very interesting, you know, where we really look, okay, am I pushing something away? Am I attached? Am I clinging? Are there expectations or whatever? You know, and we, so we can, we can actually take the suffering to be the impetus for a real investigation. Uh, and I've just found that hugely uh, helpful in my life. Thank you, Joseph. Uh, so I wonder, have we got time for maybe one more question, Joseph? Sure, sure. sure. Uh, I just want to say, uh, I've been browsing, some people have been sending me questions privately through the chat and some of them have been posted to everyone. And there's just so many. Uh, <laughs> I, I think, I feel like we could spend all day here. And, and, it, and they really show the, the breadth and the depth of people's practice, the, the, the breadth of people's situations and the, the challenges that people are facing. And I'm really sorry that we can't um, raise all the questions here. There, there, there is just so much that you could bring your wisdom to, Joseph. But, um, and, and I feel like some of, it, some, some of these questions, maybe you've, you've, you've covered a little bit here, um, but maybe one, one that there's another theme which, which a few people have asked about, which, which, we, which maybe you could uh, offer some guidance around is, is how uh, how we can bring the practice when um, people around us, when there's a lot of people around us and they're not skilled, maybe, and they're um, mm -hmm. and that, that it's kind of maybe overwhelming. Um, and how can we help them to find equilibrium, or how can we find equilibrium ourselves in the face of, you know, maybe living as part of a chaotic family life? So two things come to mind <clears throat> with respect to relating to other people who may not be practicing mindfulness and, you know, maybe a, a caught in more unwholesome mind states or unskillful mind states. I think the, the, the first step 
is, uh, and it does go back a little bit, but to what I mentioned, uh, in our interactions, it's not wanting them to be different. Because if, if that's the energy we're bringing to the exchange, it's not an inviting energy for communication. You know, and I had this come up in those in in years when uh, I was still in India. And this goes back, you know, a long time now. Uh, but at times I would come home for a few months at a time, and I would spend some time at home uh, with my mother. And we had a pretty good relationship. And in fact, she was interested in meditation. But like all family dynamics, there were aspects that you know, if only. She were a little less this or a little more this. She'd be so much happier. <laughs> that was that was my that was my the attitude that I started with. That didn't work very well, you know, in terms of opening communication. Because if we just think, how would we feel if people are relating to us, wanting us to be different? <laughs> you know, very often we just put up some kind of defense, you know, or close off a bit. It was really amazing when I dropped back. And as I said, we had a pretty pretty good relationship, but I just dropped back into accepting that this is how she is. You know, and she'll probably stay this way. You know, she's probably not gonna change. Uh, and when I got okay with that, when I got accepting of that, the whole relationship got so much easier because the energy be between us was much cleaner. It's like I wasn't I wasn't always kind of even in a subtle way pushing for a change. Then once that, you know, we cleared it up energy, I cleared it up, you know, on my side energetically, and I just relaxed, you know, and just, you know, it was just with however, however she was being and how things unfolded. And it was so much more easeful because I wasn't pushing against it. And then at times there were opportunities uh, just to engage in conversation, you know, in a more, uh, one might almost say impersonal way, not, oh, you should really be different, but just really a Dharma discussion, you know, about different mind states and what might be skillful and not skillful. So I think that's a big piece. Um, So what was the part of the question about oneself? So how, how, how can you keep equilibrium yourself in the, in the chaos of dynamic situations, relational situations? Yeah, well, I think, I mean, I, I, mean, I think it is related to that. It's, it's, and again, it goes back to expectation. You know, if we have expectations for things to be a certain way, and then they're not, we just get frustrated and we fall out of equilibrium if we're free of expectations. And it's not that difficult. And in a way it's analogous to how we relate to pain in the body. You know, so this is, this is an unpleasant interpersonal situation, right? That's causing us distress. How are we, when there's a pain in the body, you know, at first people, before they've really developed some skill in the practice, we don't like it and we push against it and we want to change it and we want to do all these things. And maybe the last thing in our mind is, oh, I can just be with this. I can, 
I can open. It's unpleasant and that's okay. It's okay that it's unpleasant. My mind doesn't have to be reactive to the unpleasantness. Um, and it's the same thing in our interpersonal relations. The underlying very simple foundation, which I have found just to be basically the bedrock of uh, interpersonal interactions uh, is to be kind. Just to be kind, you know, in the way we speak, in the way uh, we interact, when that's, when that's the bottom line for us, you know, when that's the space that we're coming from. So even when it's challenging and even maybe at times when we do need to respond or set boundaries or whatever it is, you know, so it's, it's not saying that we just have to always sit back and let uh, difficult or harmful situations roll over us. Sometimes it does take an active response, but are we doing it with kindness? Or are we doing it out of anger or out of frustration? Um, you know, as we've talked uh, a little bit just about the meta meditation, loving kindness. And in that phrase, loving kindness, I always like to emphasize the kindness part because love is a very big word. It has a lot of different meanings and interpretations and often, you know, am I loving enough or fear that we're not or whatever. Kindness to me is much more down to earth. It's much, it's much simpler. We know when we're being kind or unkind. And to practice, to practice that heart of kindness, um, it's just a beautiful quality. And I think it, it really is the basis for skillful relationships. So the, the Dalai Lama, he, he actually had a teaching on this. He said, be kind whenever possible. It's always possible, you know? And so I think that's really true. So I'd just like to thank all of you for joining at this time. Uh, it's really been great. I, I've had a lot of fun. <laughs> I hope it's been I hope it's been helpful uh, to you in some way, uh, and also a lot of appreciation uh, for Gaia House, you know, and all the various centers because that's really it's the institutions which, in a way, uh, are holding uh, or the framework or the what makes possible the, the transmission of the Dharma, you know, and it's been this way since the time of the Buddha, you know, whether it was the institution of the the monastic sangha, which held the teachings, or in these days in the West, it's often uh, groups of lay Dharma practitioners. Um, so I'm really glad to uh, be of support also to to Gaia House you know, for the great work they're doing. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Joseph. It, we we have had a wonderful. I've I've personally had a wonderful evening, and I think I speak on behalf of everyone who's joined us. Um, we are so grateful for your wisdom and teaching and for your, your support of Guy House and for everybody who's joined us tonight. Thank you so much for your, your generosity in giving your time and energy to practice, to your questions to Joseph and to your financial support to Guy House. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, yeah, wonderful.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.